You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me as he does each week, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hello. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, as I've been saying for a little while, this is a, a very special show because we've got a, a guest here we're really excited about. But real quick, before we get to that, it's a special show for another reason, which I just realized this morning. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of StatCast podcast. We started this thing a year ago. Wow. I think that's cool. We've had players, we've had writers, we've had the general manager of the Rockies, and uh, you joined like halfway through, and I think that that's helped. So a whole year of the StatCast podcast. That's cool. And our special anniversary show. To it is go a with special it. anniversary show. So we have here in the studio with us someone we're very excited to have here with us. Uh, Tom Tango is here with us, and Tom Tango is going to be joining MLB.com today. Is actually his first day as a senior senior data art, architect. I almost got that out. And uh, Tom, we're so happy to have you here. Thank you, guys. It's really a, a great, great uh, day for me. It's uh, one of the things I've been uh, waiting for for a long time, and I'm glad it finally worked out. Now, I'm guessing a lot of the listeners of this podcast heard the name Tom Tango, and they're kind of bouncing up and down. They're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. But I don't think everybody knows. And uh, as I say each week, that's because I know my dad is a regular listener. So just a quick background on, on Tom here. Tom has been uh, one of the foremost writers, uh, baseball and uncle writers for about 15 years. He's the co-author of the book. He literally wrote the book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. He's been a consultant for several major league teams, and uh, he's the creator of a lot of stats we use here a lot. Uh, FIP, Fielding Independent Pitching, that was Tom. Weighted Runs Created Plus, uh, Weighted on Base Average, Leverage Index, Win Expectancy, a whole bunch more. Uh, Tom has created all of those, and now he's here to help us work on StatCast and kind of take this data, this this enormous amount of data we have, and really uh, understand it better and kind of get to these new stats that we really want to get to. Uh, so I think that's really cool, and Tom, welcome. We're really happy to have you. So, Tom, when you kind of start digging into the data, I know there's going to be so much to get into. Like, what's the first thing you're really excited to, to get at? Uh, well, the thing always starts with you have to have some sort of question. You're trying to figure out what it is that uh, is going to excite you, interest you. Uh, so right now what I'm looking at is uh, batted ball speed and uh, vertical launch angle. Because there's so much that goes on in a game that you don't know what it is that's, uh, you know, if it's just luck, if there's a skill there, because all you see is the outcome. You see a hit, you don't know if it was a hard hit ball, if it was a squibbler. Uh, so that's what we're trying to figure out. So try to organize the data and, and just get right into it. So that'll kind of lead us to uh, expected outcomes, right? We're always trying to get to, you know, it's baseball, right? You could get a ball 110 miles an hour and it's not an out and it's not a hit sometimes even though you did your job. And this will kind of help us get a combination of, of velocity and angle and direction and really go, like, how often was that play supposed to be a hit? And that'll kind of get to, like, luck or skill, right? Right, exactly. Because when you're watching the game, you know. So, like, you'll watch a game, you'll see a ball getting hit really hard, and it, but it got went right to a fielder. And you know, you make a mental note that, okay, that should have been a hit. But a week later, you're not going to remember it. All you're going to see that he got an out. So we're trying to, you know, give a different view to that data so that you'll remember it, that, that piece of data that was a hard hit ball that ended up with an out. So if you look at some of them, like you'd see uh, guys with like 118 mile an hour uh, uh, exit velocity for an out. So those are almost always home runs, 
or you know deep deep uh, extra base hits but in these couple of cases they're outs which is kind of unfortunate but it's just like bad luck that that would have happened but you know in the future we know that those guys if they can hit it that hard they will end up with success what do you think is sort of the the next when you when you sort of get fully get your hands around that data, data what is like the next breakthrough like what are we going to what are you hoping that we can learn is it going to be like is it mostly you think we can do better projections? Do you think we'll be able to do um, just better post hoc analysis? Like, what are you like? What do you, what do you, what's what's the goal? No, I think more it's just the uh, the understanding of of the game itself. I mean, just look at on the fielding side. There's so many different ways you can position the fielders, and it's not just based on who the batter is, but also the score of the game, the the inning, the outs, the whole thing. And, and yet we don't know where all the fielders are positioned. So I would like to know where all the fielders positioned in, in various game situations, uh, collect that, organize that, and present it in a way so that we can see, uh, you know, in, in these kinds of situations, this is where you're gonna find the fielders. And if there's some teams that don't put their fielders there, that would be interesting too as to why aren't they putting fielders where everyone else are putting them. So I think there's a whole bunch of questions that, that you could ask, and we just need to organize that data so we can find those answers. And I think, I think you hit on what everybody from day one wants to know, right, is how do we improve defensive metrics? Because I think offensive metrics are pretty good. Uh, defensive metrics are always a little questionable. It's like how much sample size do you need? Does it take three years to actually get to an accurate viewpoint? And um, you know, I think we can hopefully use this data, like you said, the starting points for each, you know, let's say outfielders, because it's not really just about did you catch it, but how much effort did you have to put into catching it? Were you three feet away from the ball? Is it more about positioning? Is it more about skill? And uh, you know, I think that's what everybody really wants from us from, from day one, right? And that, that right. I mean, how would you envision kind of a metric like that working? Yeah, that, that's exactly correct. Because the the guy made an out, but you don't know was he positioned exactly where he should have been, or he had to run a long way to get that ball. So uh, all we need to do uh, at the very beginning is just establish the starting position of every fielder for every play. And once we know that, we can then figure out what his you know, opportunity space was to make a play. So once we know that, then we could figure out uh, how good is he and as well how good is he positioned. So the two combined will, will give us exactly what we've been after. So it's just a matter of simply the data is recorded. Now we just got to put it together and, and put it out there. Do you, sorry, Matt, I was going to I was saying, I have to imagine, you know, on your typical... I'd say, let's talk about outfield defense. Let's say probably 90% of batted balls any outfielder could have caught. Is it 80%? Where's sort of the cutoff? And how do you sort of find that line of where the numbers start to, to matter? Right? Because right. um, there's probably 30% of cans of corn in the major leagues I could catch. Maybe, right. maybe 20. I'd, I'd like to see that. But yeah. <laughs> no, that's exactly correct. And, and that's what you would do. You would look for, let's say, the outfielders who make the least amount of plays. And that kind of gives you the, the minimum point as, as for the, let's say, the match level of anybody can make that play. And then anything beyond that, that's where the skill comes in. So, and you're right, there's, there's some gimmies in there. So I don't know if it's like 70% of outs are gimmies and 20% of hits are gimmies. And then everything else is just everything in between uh, where there's skill involved. So, yeah, that's what we're trying to go after. So we have so many battered balls out there. Most of them are noise where skill's not really involved, and now we're going to try to zero in on those that do require skill, and let's figure out which players are making the plays and which are not. Do you think we could use kind of the, the, the new data we have to 
take existing stats and uh, make like a, a next version of them. Take, for example, uh, FIP, right? Fielding independent pitching, which for those who don't know, it's really, it's an ERA estimator and it's just about how often does the pitcher uh, get strikeouts and walks and home runs and tries to take the defense out of it entirely. But it doesn't really account for batted ball quality. And in, I think we're learning a little bit that the really good pitchers can limit exit velocity and batted ball quality. So do you think, you know, the future is maybe a next version of that that incorporates something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's already coming out by, you know, the public is, is fantastic with the data. The data is already available in some form, maybe not in the granular form that we're gonna that everyone really wants, but there's enough out there that there's a lot of good public researchers who are doing exactly that. So that's exactly the direction we're gonna go in and and we're gonna delve into it as much as we can because we have access to all the data that we want. Now you've worked for uh, consulted for a couple teams, the uh, the Mariners and the Cubs and the Blue Jays. It just kind of like being able to peek under the hood inside teams. What sort of you know? I, are they using this data to evaluate players or, you know, how in-depth do these teams get with that kind of stuff? Yeah, they get pretty in-depth with it. Uh, I mean, because anytime you get a new piece of data, you're always trying to figure out what, what is this piece of data telling me? And so you never reject data. You always try to figure out what is the data telling you and you're trying to figure out if there's any kind of bias to the data that it's going to, you know, it might lead you down the wrong path. So let's say as a simple example, if you didn't know anything about cores, you would think that uh, there was a lot of great hitters at uh, in, with Colorado, but you're aware of what Coors does to hitters, so you have to adjust that data. So the same thing here is that anytime you're given this new piece of data, you have to be a little bit careful that you're not going too far with it. You have to understand its limitations. Now, one issue you know we have a lot is. Um trying to identify the data that's meaningful. Take, for example, uh, outfield throwing arms, right? How many times a day does an outfielder just lob a ball back into the infield and he's not really trying and it doesn't matter? But, you know, obviously sometimes he is trying. The way we've, we've tried to get to that is just taking the, uh, the plays above the 90th percentile. And I know it's not great. We're throwing out a lot of data there, but it's gotten us pretty close. Like, it passes the smell test because you have guys like Puig and Gomez and Aaron Hicks were atop the list, and uh, that makes a lot of sense. It feels like that's good enough, but maybe we could do better just in terms of like the uh, right mathematical approach, right? Right. Uh, there's a lot of art to it, exactly like you're saying it, because you're watching the game, you, you already have a feel for, for what's going on, and you know that if a guy's lobbing it in, it really means nothing in, in the end. So, yes, you, you're trying to figure out what that point is, and starting with a point of, let's say, uh, only looking at the top 10% of hardest throws for each player, that's a great starting point. And then we just have to figure out is 10% the best number, and maybe it's 15, maybe it's maybe it's seven, uh, but we'll get to that point by looking at all the data. And you know, the data is, you know, it's going to lead you to that answer because it'll speak to you when you see the data. Yeah, I think you're right. We, we kind of chose 10 because it's it's easily understandable from a public point of view, but is it 11.5%? Like, I don't really know the answer to that. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And for things like throwing arms and, and running speed, because there's like not that much of a difference, uh, you know, a guy can throw it 100 times uh, all out, but pretty much he's going to throw it at around the same speed each time, let's say like within a range of five miles an hour. So it's not like you, like if someone throws it in your top 10%, he throws it to 90, 93, 92, 91, and then because you drew that arbitrary line at 10%, uh, there's an 84 in there. So you know that that 84, you, you drew the line too low, the 84 shouldn't have been part of it. You should just stick with those that were at the top because a guy who throws all out on 92, if he's then throwing at 84, you know he had to take something off. So we're just trying to be careful that you don't want to 
You know, just be blindly follow a rule just because you establish a rule. You still have to let the data speak, and there is some art to, to all this. And kind of along those lines, and I'm asking you this because I've seen you actually write about it, is just the idea of average is a little wonky. Like, we use average exit velocity, right? But, you know, if two guys have an average exit velocity of 90 and one of them is, hits 90 every single time and the other guy is somewhat 60 and somewhat 120, those aren't the same player because average doesn't really account for the distribution Right. How do, how, how do you account for that when trying to say, like, who's actually, like, the best at this or that? Right. So that's very interesting that you bring that up because uh, last night I was I decided to just write my first article pre-working pre here as, as the first setup. And that's exactly the article I was writing uh, to try to understand or explain that average is not just any kind of average. You're really focusing on the thing that matters, and that's the, the highest speed because uh, that's what really matters. The other stuff, you, you do like a, a half uh, half swing, you get a pop-up. Those things really don't mean anything to... Because you, you can like swing and miss, and suddenly uh, there's no exit velocity to report at all. So it actually helps you to swing and miss rather than just hit a pop-up. So well, I mean, this is why it's, you know, you look at the, the leaderboards, it's, you see Pedro Alvarez, you see Mark Trumbo, although he's having a great year, but it's like... It's Chris Carter. It's all the guys who basically swing and miss a lot because they only, when they make contact, they get a great reading, but they don't make contact oh, oh, a lot. We've had Chris Coughlin was on this show saying he'd much rather swing and miss than make poor contact. It's like the, the live to fight again another day, right? Because that's exactly what you want. Um, you know, I wanted to know you. Uh, you know, you obviously have uh, you've worked for teams, but you also it's been a decade or so since you wrote the book. And I'm assuming that a lot of people who kind of were reading that a decade ago are now working in front offices. And a lot of the ideas you put forward in that are, are now on the field, right? Like, like pit your best hitter second, a couple other things. That must be pretty interesting and fulfilling to see these ideas you had 10 years ago now actually impacted the game. Yeah, the, the one that actually, uh, that I liked the most was the times through the order effect. Um, that one wasn't really discussed much, even when we wrote the book, when we published it. Uh, there was some talk prior to the book. There was David Smith, a retro sheet. He was talking about, he wrote an article, you know, in the 90s about a batter's learning in the game. Um, but then when, after we did the book, we started showing, if you look at it times through the order, you see that the, the pitcher really gets hit harder and harder each time through the order. And if you talk to, to players, they know this. So it's not like we, we had a great revelation that we're showing it. Uh, we follow along in terms of, uh, you know, the direction as to how people are thinking, but what we really did was uh, describe the magnitude of it so that the third time through the order, you don't want an average starting pitcher there. You'd rather have the relief pitcher because a fresh relief pitcher is better than a tired average starting pitcher. And, you know, and I think the, the, the Tampa Rays, uh, last year, they were doing a lot of that where after 18 batters, they would pull their pitcher. So things like, little things like that, you know, uh, I find interesting. Most people probably, like, wouldn't even think about it, but those little things uh, I like. Uh, there was another one also interesting is uh, last year, uh, Anthony Rizzo uh, bunted twice for a base hit back-to-back -back in the same game because they were shifting him, so he bunted it in the open, open spot. And the third time he came up, there was no shift. So it's one of those things where, you know, the, the player is buying into it and then sees the, the impact and then, you know, things change. So little things like that is probably the things that I'll remember the most. 
So going back to the uh, the third time to the order penalty, I've got two questions, follow-up questions on that. One of which is, how much of it do you think is the pitcher getting tired versus players getting familiar with the arm slot, the p- tempo, and the pace? Like, what do you think is the breakdown of that? The second question is, assuming the Rays are sort of the first team to take this to the logical extreme, what would you think, or the quote-unquote logical extreme, what is the logical extreme? If you could start a team in a vacuum and players had no preconceived notions of what a pitching staff should look like, what would pitcher usage look like? Uh, so it, it would be mostly that the batter is learning from the pitcher rather than the pitcher getting tired. Um, my co-author, he did uh, additional research on that after we published the book. And uh, so he was trying to control for the number of pitches. And the number of pitches really didn't affect much. Really, it was simply the batter uh, was learning rather than the pitcher being tired. Uh, in terms of having the ideal staff, uh, you know, unless you have a great pitcher like a Kershaw where he can go three times through the order, uh, no problem. Uh, I would try to focus as much as possible uh, in terms of just limiting those pitchers uh, to those two times through the order. And you get the additional benefit of not letting him hit uh, that extra time at bat. Because so often you'll see a pitcher will stay in the game. Let's say in the sixth inning, he, instead of being pinch hit, he comes up to bat and then he's pulled the, the inning right after. So rather than doing that, pinch hit for him, put in a relief pitcher. But, you know, the, the teams do have legitimate concerns in terms of, you know, wearing out your, your bullpen. So there is, you know, that aspect that you have to understand that, you know, pitchers are, are human and they have their own uh, routine. So you have to respect all of that. So you, you can't just make a big, big switch. It's got to be like a, a small shift just to make sure that everyone's on board with it. Because if they're not on board with it, you're not, you're not going to succeed. If a team went st- stuck strictly to this two times to the order thing, do you think that could be the, the path back to a four-man rotation? Uh, potentially, sure. Uh, I, I just don't know that we can get there. And especially if, as, as long as, you know, like I said, with Kershaw, you can't do that. And now you're going to create like two classes of pitchers so that on the Dodgers, if Kershaw's pitching one way, then you got the rest of the staff pitching another way. It's you know it might not work out. So you know there is that aspect that you have to consider. So you the race sort of had that with Archer last year, right? A little bit, right? A little but bit. <laughs> yeah. not on purpose, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, I remember writing about it. Yeah, Archer was great, and then everybody else was hurt or injured or couldn't actually get past there, even if they wanted to. So it was like it was a strategy, but it was also just kind of the uh, desperation of the situation that they're in, uh, which I think was rough. There's also, sorry, there's also an ego aspect to it as well. So, uh, you know, when, when we had uh, Ichiro on the Mariners, there was some, like, talk to try to push him out of the leadoff role and put him, let's say, the number two hitter, which might be more ideal for him as a hitter. But Ichiro in, in Japan, being leadoff hitter is, like, this great, great honor. Like, being a cleanup hitter here, being a leadoff hitter in Japan is, like, a great honor. If you were to say to Ichiro, we'll bat you second... You know, that's, that's slighting him, and you may gain a little bit in terms of moving him to the number two spot, but if he doesn't like it, you're going to lose a whole ton uh, against that. So as much as you try to, you know, optimize things, you still have to respect the players have a certain habit, and, and you've got to work with that. I think that's absolutely true. We've, we've talked a lot this year about uh, outfield positioning, and guys been moving back or, or forward, depending on what the stats say. And some of the outfielders said, you know, I really wanted to do this before, but the pitchers would freak out if I moved back and all the bloops would fall in and they'd kill me, and there's only so much I can do with my teammate freaking out. 
Uh, I, I have one last question for you, and uh, this is only because I've just lived this very recently. You have been writing about baseball kind of on the side. You've had a real-world job for many, many years. How satisfying was it to go into your boss on the last day at your real-world job and say, I'm going to do baseball full-time? Well, I, I didn't actually say the reason I was leaving. <laughs> I just said that, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going somewhere else, and... Uh, and that's how it ended. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sooner or later they're going to figure this out and you're going to start getting phone calls. <laughs> At some point, but we'll see how long we can last. Oh, that's upsetting. I've got one more question, which is, are there any sort of like crazy hypotheses that you've been like dying to test that you're like, okay, now that I have access, like full access to StatCast, I can finally test this hypothesis? Uh, I don't know that I have anything crazy like that. Uh, I know, I just know though that when I see the data, some crazy ideas like that may pop up into my head and then I'll look at it and it may turn out to be nothing at all and maybe it'll turn out to be something good. Uh, so I'm just excited to try to see what kind of crazy questions we can come up with. As are we all, I think. I can't wait. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been the StatCast Podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. He's Matt Myers. Also joining us, Tom Tango. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.